Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Father Andrew Mattingly. I am a Catholic priest in Kansas City, Missouri, and this is a podcast where I post homilies and random other stuff that I might teach or speak about. Hope you find something useful and maybe even inspiring. God bless you. Today is the solemnity of Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. King of the Universe. The church doesn't apply this title to our Lord just to make it sound more sort of triumphalistic and great and wonderful that he's king of the universe. There's a lot of theological meaning behind giving him this specific title. We could just call him, you know, Jesus Christ King, but the church calls him King of the Universe. Why is that? Why is that? Well, to understand why we call him King of the Universe, we have to go back to the beginning of time when God chose in the first place to create the universe. And we read that when God chose to create the universe, he did it in a specific way, which was through his Son, through the second person of the Trinity. He spoke the universe into being by his word with a capital W. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, is also the Word with a capital W. St. John says in the prologue to his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and everything was created, paraphrasing here, everything was created through the Word. Everything was created through Him. Right? We, we see this theme pop up again in St. Paul's letter to the Colossians today, which is one of the most densely Packed theological statements in all of Paul's writings. This, this passage from the first chapter of Colossians, and he's describing this kingship of Christ over all of creation. And he says, In Him, in the Son, were created all things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. All things were created through Him and for Him. In Him all things hold together. So the kingship of Christ, Christ being the, the second person of the Trinity become incarnate, the kingship of Christ began at the beginning of time. Since creation was made through him, he has dominion over all creation. Unfortunately, as we know, the story progressed and what happened? There was a rival kingdom that attempted to set itself up in opposition to the kingdom of Christ, which occurred after the fall of our first parents. Adam and Eve fall into sin, and sin enters the world, and it affects Christ's dominion. It affects the dominion of the second person of the Trinity over not only human beings, but even over the broader created order itself. Remember, king of the universe, not just of human hearts, but of all created things. After the fall, what do we see happen? There's dramatic effects for mankind, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. In other words, they lose the state of grace. They lose friendship with God. There's tension that builds between them. They now are, are tempted to see each other as objects to be used rather than persons to be loved. So there's dramatic effects within the human family. But there's also effects from original sin in the created order at large. This is often overlooked in the creation accounts. If you recall, one of the curses placed upon Adam 
after the fall comes from God Himself. And He says, He says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. In other words, original sin not only affected the hearts of human beings, but it affected also this kingdom of the second person of the Trinity over all created things, even over the land. That in some way, before the fall, tilling the earth and having it bear fruit would have been much easier. It still would have required the work of Adam and Eve, but it wouldn't have been as burdensome and laborious as it is now after the fall. Sin affects everything. And so Satan is the one that sort of sort of got them to commit this sin, and so he begins setting up this rival kingdom to the kingdom of God, a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of slavery, and those two kingdoms have been at, at war ever since original sin. And God allows Satan a very limited amount of influence and dominion over human hearts by tempting them, and over the created order by keeping it as St. Paul says later in one of his writings, in bondage to decay. So, so we have this, this war going on between a, the time of original sin until this third stage of the kingdom of God when the second person, the Trinity, the same person through whom everything was made, comes back to recreate what had been fallen. The second person, the Trinity, comes back, takes on a human nature, and goes to work to recreate and redeem what had been fallen in the first place human beings. Comes back in the first place to redeem us, to reconcile us with the Father. But then also, something that we often forget, to reconcile all of the rest of the created order to the Father as well. Everything else that had been corrupted by original sin the cosmos, nature, human affairs, human endeavors, all of, the, all of these other things are meant to also be reconciled to the Father. And we, we see this in a lot of the texts for, for Mass today. In the preface, which we'll pray in just a few minutes, right before the Eucharistic prayer, we call Jesus eternal priest and king of all creation. And then later on, we pray that by offering Himself on the altar of the cross, He might accomplish the mysteries of human redemption and make all created things subject to His rule. So He comes to redeem mankind and all of creation. This is a very important point, and, and we can't forget it. This is where things get pretty exciting, because when you and I were baptized, we entered into participation in Jesus. And one of the things that we participate in is, is His kingship. We participate in His kingship by baptism. So, what does this mean? It means that He has come to reconcile people and the created order to the Father, and He invites us to participate in that dual mission. He says, hey, at our baptism, he says to each of us, hey, I want you to cooperate with me to extend my kingdom over souls. We do this by evangelization. We do this by helping people who are already faithful to come to know the Lord better. And he also says, 
I want you to help me extend my kingdom over the entire created order. The entire created order. There's a special name for this in church documents that, that for this particular mission. And it's called renewing the temporal order. That's, that's the phrase that's most often used. This mission of renewing the temporal order, of cooperating with Jesus to reconcile all human endeavors, human affairs, social activities, society, the structures within it, to reconcile all of those things to the Father, right? And who is this mission entrusted to specifically? Not the clergy, not religious, but the laity. The most unique mission that you have as lay people is to reconcile created realities to the Father, to cooperate with Christ in that great endeavor. Now, don't get me wrong, the primary mission of the church, which you cooperate in, is still redeeming souls, evangelization and sanctification. But the most unique mission that you have as a layperson is this other arena, reconciling created things to the Father, renewing the temporal order, as we say. What is the temporal order? Well, it's a multifaceted thing that's hard to put your finger on. But in church documents, often it, they'll list out all sorts of examples of what would be included in the temporal order. For example, in one of the documents of Vatican II, it says, the family, the home, culture in general, economic matters, politics, law, the arts, the various professions, and the list goes on. These things would be included in the temporal order. Now, how do you renew that? If, if this is such an important mission of the laity, how do, you, how do you renew those things? How do you renew the home and family life, the culture, economics, law, politics, arts? How do you renew those things? Well, I, I really wish I had many, many hours to talk to you about this. This is something I'm very passionate about and something that I've discovered, even though the church has talked about it consistently since Vatican II in particular, it's something uh, very, very unknown <laughs> by most Catholics. Um, but I'm just going to point out two arenas for you and give you some practical images of what this might look like. So, one of the arenas of the temporal order that we're called to renew as lay people, well, you're called to renew, um, not me, I do other things, uh, is, is the culture. Which, when you say the culture, it's like, oh my goodness, that is, you know, a million, a million different things that, that are involved in the culture. But one of the aspects of culture that's important to be renewed, I think, um, and I may sound a bit old-fashioned when I say this, but it, it's important, it's small but it's important, is the idea of common courtesy or manners. Now, we may think about that and think to ourselves, that doesn't sound like it has a whole lot to do with, I don't know, the Christian life or, or being on mission, uh, but this is very important. Uh, our, our culture has lost almost entirely any sense of, of common courtesy or manners. And you're called in a particular way as lay people to renew things like this. Because when something like this is renewed, it sort of raises the bar for 
just general charity and connectedness and all sorts of things throughout society, which then makes it even easier for the church to fulfill her primary mission of reaching souls. When a society is a society grounded in something like common courtesy and manners, people in general are going to have hearts that are much more open to the gospel. And so, to give you an example, like when you go out in public, three ideas for how common courtesy and, and manners can, can play a role. It used to be the case that when you went out in public that you dressed well, right? It's funny, uh, I'll, I'll talk to some people in the medical field and they'll say that they're patients that come in for an appointment who are like 80 years plus, like they're so typically so, not always, but on average so well dressed for their doctor's appointment. <laughs> Whereas those under a certain age, my generation in particular, uh, not so much. <laughs> and that goes for, for all other sectors of society. Now when I was like 20 years old, if somebody said to me, oh, you should actually like dress well when you go to Walmart, I would have laughed at them. I would have said, that's ridiculous. You don't dress well when you go to Walmart. You wear, I wear like gym shorts with paint stains on them and like a cutoff t-shirt and flip-flops. That's, that's what you wear to Walmart, right? But what happens when we start dressing in that way throughout society at large is that when I go up and have an interaction with somebody and I'm dressed that way and they're dressed that way, the messages that are being exchanged there subliminally by, by how I present myself is, I don't respect myself well enough uh, to dress in a decent way in public. I also don't respect your dignity enough to really respect this way, or at least I'm too, maybe I respect our dignities, but I'm too lazy to actually live that out by, by dressing in, in a decent way. It doesn't mean you need, obviously, to wear a suit and tie to Walmart, but flip-flops and, and gym shorts and cut-off shirt, eh, it's, it's not going to <laughs> raise the level of the interaction um, but when we dress well, it immediately creates this, this sense of respect and human dignity. Just a small example of how, how as a layperson, you can renew the temporal order when you go out in public. Another thing is trying to hone and shape the art of small talk. A lot of people will look down on small talk and say, I'm not a small talk person, I don't want to waste time with that. But it's just an issue of common courtesy and kindness, right? I was going to, into a wedding reception last night, and on the way in, I happened, as you do, going to an event. You happen to find yourself walking alongside a stranger. And as we're walking in, we had about 20 or 30 seconds, and could have just stayed in silence. But I took it as an opportunity to practice this art of small talk, to establish for 20 seconds a little bond with a fellow member of the human race, probably a member of God's family too. This is a very Catholic wedding, so he's probably baptized, he's probably a brother in Christ. And I, I spent those 20 minutes forming this, this small bond. And, and something like that, this, this art of, of small talk, of you know, engaging with the person next to you on the plane, and, and maybe it could lead to deeper, deeper talk. This is this is a way to renew the temporal order. You go out in society, nobody talks to each other. Everybody's got headphones in and they're on their phone. And, and this is a way, again, to raise the bar. Another last thing in this arena would be like body language when we're out in public, right? There's a fine line to strike between walking around in an arrogant way, sort of strutting, and walking around in a sort of dejected fashion where you're sort of almost like Quasimodo from The Hunchback and, you know, and 
you have to strike this balance where we walk with a sense of self-confidence, but also with a warm openness that would be inviting for other people to approach us, right? This is something that I feel like many people don't think about. But next time you're in the grocery store, take notice. See who is walking around the grocery store in this super dejected sort of way, downcast, brooding, or somebody maybe walking around with sort of a strut, kind of arrogant, and think to yourself, man, if everybody walked around this grocery store like dressed well, sort of with, with decent body language, and was making a lot of eye contact, willing to make small talk, man, like the environment in that grocery store overnight would go from here to here, right? This, this is the kind of stuff that you're called to do in a particular way as, as lay people to sort of renew the culture. In the second place, I would say you should look in a, in a very intentional way at your occupation. Whatever your occupation is, this is going to be the thing where you have the greatest opportunity to renew the temporal order because you spend so much time in your occupation. And to renew your occupation, you really have to look at two areas. What I'll call the raw material of your occupation, which is the knowledge and skills that you need to do it well. And then what you might call the soul of your occupation, which is the virtues and in some cases the ethical principles that you need to do it well. And if you can continue to acquire mastery in these two areas, the knowledge and skills for your particular occupation, and then the, the ethical principles and virtues of your occupation, and you keep deepening those year after year after year, day after day, you will be renewing the temporal order in your occupation. I think far too many Catholics approach their occupation purely as a means to a paycheck, if that's the way that you look at your occupation, you're completely missing the most unique opportunity that you have as a layperson to be on mission. To, to raise up, to reconcile to the Father created realities. Right? Our occupation can never just become a means to a paycheck. We have to, we have to figure out how to renew it, to raise it up, to infuse it with a, with a Christian spirit. Right? A plumber has to have knowledge and skills to do his craft well. He has to understand how water lines are built, how they work. He has to know things about city code. He has to know which tools to use to adjust this, to fix that. If he were to become complacent three years into his job and say, ah, I have this figured out. I have no interest in acquiring deeper mastery over my craft. He would be completely missing the boat in this area of mission that the Lord is calling him to. To, to deepen his knowledge and skills. Somebody who's a homemaker as their occupation. I know we have many homemakers in the parish here. The knowledge and skills required to do that well are a dizzying array of things. It covers a, about the broadest spectrum of, of knowledge and skills that, that you could possibly imagine. Right? The art of cooking, some people make an occupation of that by itself. You can go to school for years to perfect that. That's just one of the many knowledge, pieces of knowledge and skills that, that a homemaker needs to have. Decor, figuring out what is the decor that is most, gonna be most conducive to the people in my family thinking of higher things, right? What, what kind of decor, what kind of lighting, what, what kind of art is going to assist them in loving God? 
Right? This is just another one of the knowledge, pieces of knowledge and skills a homemaker needs to have. I mean, it, it varies from knowing things about finance, gardening, house plants, like nursing wounds if you have kids, right? Like you even need some medical knowledge uh, to, to be a homemaker. It, it sort of spans the, the spectrum. Uh, so you get the idea. And then once, once we're on board with this idea that, okay, if I'm gonna renew the temporal order of my occupation, I can never be content with the knowledge and skills that I have. I have to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Once, once you're convinced of that, then the next step is to say, what specific virtues do I need to infuse my knowledge and skills to make them the most Christian thing that they can possibly be? Right? What particular virtues do I need? So for the plumber, for example, a lot of the virtues in this realm are going to revolve around honesty and hard work. Honesty in the sense that he's going to come in and accurately diagnose the problem. He's not going to try and diagnose a mythical problem just so that he can make more money. Right? We've all been ripped off by dishonest people in all sorts of trades. So he's going to be honest about diagnosing the problem. He's going to give a fair price. He's going to do exactly what he promises to do. And when he's done with that thing, he's going to clean up after himself. Right? These are the, the, the types of virtues, the honesty and integrity that would go into that particular occupation. If somebody's, you know, a homemaker, there's going to be all sorts of things, you know, infusing their home with affection, being industrious, making use of tiny blocks of time, like, and flexible with tons of interruptions if there's kids involved in the homemaking process, right? All sorts of different virtues involved in that, and, and you get the idea. So whatever your occupation is, whatever you spend time doing working, it's, it's good to ask yourself, okay, what virtues do I need the most in order to, to sort of infuse my occupation uh, with, with a Christian spirit? And again, we come back to why we're doing all this. It's because Jesus, when we were baptized, he invited us into a great mission, not just for souls, but to renew the entire cosmos, every created thing that exists, every human occupation, every human affair, every endeavor, all of it has to be raised up to God. And you as lay people, this is the uniquely specific mission that is irreplaceably yours that I can't do, religious can't do. And so I just, I want to throw this out to you today, especially if it's a new concept, and really encourage you to, to dive into this, to ask the Lord to enlighten you where, where the, the weak points are and, and where, where He wants you to grow, and then to ask His grace uh, to help you live that out.